from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today I'm talking to the actor Daryl Stevens, who of course played the title role in the TV show Noah's Ark. That show, which aired between 2005 and 6, showed black gay men as fully developed characters in a way that we really haven't seen since, not in that quantity at least. There are amazing examples on Pose and other shows, but Noah's Ark is a first show built entirely around black gay men, and of equal importance, now 15, 16 years later, it remains the only show to ever do that. No others have come close to replicating it, which I think needs to be said when we celebrate it as the first. So today we talk about that, about how Noah's Ark incorporated and dealt with HIV, and then we talk about what Daryl is doing now. Because not only is Daryl acting on the CBS show Be Positive, he's also a brand new dad. So all of that is coming up, let's hear it. So I want to go back to the beginning of Noah's Ark. When you're making a show, you have no idea how it's going to be received or connect with people. When did you start to realize the impact it was having? Well, certainly not for the first few months. It felt like the majority of what we were hearing was actually not positive. It was disappointment in the flamboyance or the femininity of the characters. It was umbrage around the, the just sort of fabulosity and how there wasn't enough inclusivity in terms of the spectrum from masculine to feminine of the main characters. It felt like everyone was just too far on one side. This was before social media. So where were you seeing this feedback? MySpace was definitely happening. Oh, And MySpace was, was kind of where the tide turned for me anyway. It was like I saw the initial responses there and then I kind of stepped away like, okay, can't deal with that. And then I came back maybe three or four weeks later and the response had changed dramatically. The tone had just shifted. I'm not sure what happened. I think it was actually an episode of the show. So I think by episode three or four of season one, there was actually a conversation about Noah being sort of soft and his love interest, Wade, being a little embarrassed to bring him around his friends. And I think that conversation rang true with everyone who was watching it and taking issue with the fact that we were a little fabulous. When it comes to the like effeminacy of the character Noah, the biggest thing for me that is kind of less often acknowledged is that this is not just like a one-dimensional cliche. Like he has friends and he's dating and he has a full life and a career he's pursuing. And to me, that is radical because we still very hardly see that like a feminine character centered in the show. I think that was what was what was beautiful about the show. I think that's what really ended up sticking with people. It was people who were who experienced that as well, who experienced that sort of marginalization in their own lives, feeling like they were too effeminate to be taken seriously by their family or their friends. And seeing that character be the sort of hero or the romantic lead changed the entire conversation for them. We can dress fabulous and we can be fierce and, and you know do whatever we want with our hair, whip our hair back and forth, and fall in love and have a career and have friends who support us in that. Like, why not? I think that's why the show ultimately resonated. Your voice talking to you now is quite different than the one we're hearing on the show. Did you change your voice for the character or is that just with like time and age it's changed? No, my voice, I actually have weird vocal issues. So like when the time that when we shot that show, I was going through something vocally where I had more control over my voice in a higher octave. So it was actually a choice to put my voice in that octave 
for the character, but also I had more strength vocally at that at that in that place. So for the second season, did you still have a vocal issue or had you got past it and had to like lift up your voice for consistency? I had to lift up my voice for consistency. You'll see in the movie, I'm barely bothering to do it. If you, if you do see the movie, the movie's, I think, two or three years after the second season. And I'm, I'm not really, my voice is not really in that Noah register anymore. And so like now we can look back at the last, say, 20 years of gay representation in Hollywood. And we can see that the show stands out because it has black men dating black men. And we see how like crazy rare that is. But when you were making the show, did that feel special or noteworthy to you? It's hard to really, like you were saying earlier, it's hard to gauge how anyone will respond or how it will look from the outside. From the inside, obviously we knew we were a bunch of black men dating other black men on the show, but how the show would be received and, and where it would go and sort of the cultural zeitgeist of that moment and of, you know, and even of today, we really couldn't gauge. And I guess that I hadn't really at that time acknowledged to myself that there weren't any, you know, there was Omar on the wire was dating a black boy, right? Yeah, there weren't, there weren't a lot. There still aren't a lot. And it's just, it was revolutionary, but I don't think that we were, we were really focused on, I wasn't focused on that part. I think that Patrick Ian Polk was definitely aware of that when he was creating it. And I think that for me, it was just like, yeah, obviously like Noah's into Wade. Look at, look at Wade. Like Wilson Cruz ultimately came in and he's Puerto Rican and nobody had, nobody batted an eye at that. Right. So it was, it was very much like, of course, this is what, this is what we do. Right. This is what it looks like. This is what the world that we were trying to reflect looks like. It seemed very normal to me. You're talking about the reception and reading things on MySpace, but what about the more media centered response? Like how was it being covered and reviewed? Entertainment Weekly reviewed it. And I want to say that the reviewer gave it a D plus or something. It was very much like, what is this? Who is this for? Clearly it was not for him. I think that he was holding the show to some standards that were not necessarily what we were focused on at that point. I think what was really exciting about Noah's Ark at that time was that it was it was a low budget, you know, guerrilla filmmaking project that got picked up by a little tiny cable network under the Viacom umbrella. And so the filmmaking that was happening, the acting that was happening was still very much from that world, but we were sort of on this platform that elevated it to a, a level that we hadn't quite grasped as we were making it. And I think that that's actually what's charming about it. I think that there's also this issue of, you know, the gatekeepers of Hollywood never even allowing a story like this to be seen on TV. This would, this would never have been, when he was first started making this, it was like he, he Patrick understood Hollywood was not going to buy this show. There was no way that they wanted to see this. So we were making it like in his apartment, in people's, you know, clothing shops who were friends of, our, you know, of Rodney's, for example, doing makeup in the back of Rodney's SUV, like that kind of thing. It was straight up gorilla until Logo came into the picture because HRC and Black AIDS Institute had funded this sort of pilot and these little clips, these promotional clips that we were taking around the country for these black, black gay pride events and logo caught wind. And then we were on a soundstage, you know, near the airport suddenly with a, a full crew. And it was like, oh, oh, so this is actually happening now. So we're a show. That's so interesting that because it was conceptualized just for the community. Yeah. It wasn't conceptualized for like a mass appeal that that is why the show does like lean so hard into not trying like to like make it for straight people. That's exactly it. I think that's what what's beautiful about the show is that we were it was literally for us, about us, by us, right? It was very much a conversation amongst ourselves and nobody else really had anything to say about it. 
Well, I think that lends to something that I'm wildly impressed by with the show, which is how it handles HIV. Like one of the characters is an HIV professional, works in a clinic that he starts, and it just dispels so many myths. And I think what impresses me is just the accuracy and that there's like no stigma whatsoever about it. Well, absolutely. And Patrick felt like if we're not dealing with this, we are doing a huge disservice to our people. And so the Black AIDS Institute was actually instrumental in his even putting the show together. They funded the first little pilot. Phil Wilson at the Black AIDS Institute was instrumental in the show even existing because they they helped him put it together. So it was like secretly like propaganda to like teach people about like It was it was education. Education. Yeah, absolutely. It was subversive education. How how are we going to get these messages into the community in a very like light, comfortable, easy breezy way. I think like episode one or two, you or one of the characters mentions like meeting someone when they were getting tested. Yeah. It was so casual that I was like, oh my God, that's how we talk now. And I think to be honest, I think that people were talking about it then like that. I mean people in my world were talking about it then. It just was not being reflected on TV. I think that what was happening was sure there were a lot of black men who were not talking about it. But then there were those of us who were very much tapped into the to the AIDS, HIV and AIDS activism and the, the outreach. You know, we have friends who are on boards and stuff who are like, yes, of course, we're having these conversations and we're getting tested every six months and we're doing all these things. Like, of course. So the show really reflected that world. And I think that was what was so another thing that was so powerful about it, not just the way effeminacy was was dealt, was embraced, but the way that HIV and AIDS were just the conversations were normalized. The stigma was removed. What was your relationship to HIV before the show? I went to school in Berkeley and did theater in San Francisco. So I, in the 90s, was immersed in HIV culture. And I was getting tested every six months, like on the dot. It was it was December and June, like every year, for years and years and years. You know, I had a good girlfriend who was positive, a white woman who was positive. And it was one of those things that brought it home in a way that was sort of unexpected. There was, you know, the conversations at that time were very much about men. In the 90s, it wasn't even about necessarily black men. Y'all need to be paying more closer attention to this. It was like gay men in general. This is something that's affecting us and we're seeing people die and you saw the 80s in Philadelphia and all that shit. And now this white woman who I worked with sat me down at a coffee shop one day and said, so I'm HIV positive. And I was like, oh, oh, wow. So this is, this is, circling even closer and in ways that I did not expect. And also because I was in San Francisco and the conversation there, I remember coming, moving back to LA from the Bay Area and being like, how come nobody's talking about HIV and AIDS here? Like, where's the outreach? How come y'all, what's, why is it radio silence about HIV and AIDS in, LA, in West Hollywood? Where's, where, where's the conversation? In San Francisco, I felt like they were shoving condoms in your, into your hands if you, in, when you walked into the bars. It felt very different there. L.A. caught up eventually. I mean, I am of a slightly younger generation where the AIDS crisis was something we, like, learned about. We didn't live it, you know? Yeah. And so I think that also the insinuation was that this is over, which obviously we know it's not. We know it's still around. And so I'm still a bit surprised, to be completely honest. I'm surprised by how many people I know who are living with HIV, and I'm surprised by how often— like, it's still a topic of conversation amongst my gay friends. And what is the nature of the conversation? It tends to be just very casual, very... Okay, okay, good. Just like, oh yeah, I take my pill and it's fine. A reality. 
Yeah. A reality. Yeah. And it's not anything terribly like when someone reveals that they're living with HIV, like doesn't like shut down the conversation. It's like, oh, like, thanks for sharing that with me. And yeah. you kind of like move on. Yeah. Well, I think also, you know, we're living in the era of people who are undetectable. And when I was 32, that was not a thing. Yeah. And when I was 22, we were terrified. We were we were wearing three condoms, right? Like Like, you didn't touch anything or anybody without a condom. It was terrifying at that age. So how much of that terror now still exists with you? Are you like completely past it? Do you think about it a little bit? Like, what's that like? I would say because of, because of sort of the nature of my sexual life, obviously in my 20s, I was doing things, I was more interesting in terms of who I was seeing and how often I was seeing new people than I am in my 40s, right? I'm, I'm basically, I'm married now. So, I mean, I'm not married, but I'm, partnered now yeah so i'm not thinking about it now in the same way but when i was single you know conversations around people who i was seeing who were undetectable were certainly happening and i was like okay great well that's thanks for letting me know i wouldn't say i was i'm certainly not carrying a terror that i was carrying when i was 22 and there was no hope in sight i would definitely say that there was a point when i was probably afraid to have sex and then there was a point where i was no longer afraid to have sex that's a big change it's a huge, it's a huge change. And, and to think that people my age at 13, 14, we were watching or hearing about 20 and 30 year olds dying, 20 year olds dropping dead, 20 year olds dying alone in hospitals. We were hearing that. And that was our immediate future. And we were thinking that kid, that kid is barely older than me and is dying alone in a hospital room and his parents want him to come see him. That kind of shit was happening all the time. We were seeing that shit. It was a horror show for us. Honestly, the beautiful thing about this generation and even your generation is you, did, you didn't have to see that. I mean, you can watch It's a Sin on HBO and catch a glimpse of it, but I'm sure that it had, it's had lasting impacts on you know, our, our view of ourselves, our view of, of what we can accomplish in terms of partners, in terms of the longevity of a relationship that we can you know, achieve, how open we can be about our sexual desires in general, things like that. You know, while we're talking about dating, Peter Page, who was on Queer as Folk, he played Emmett, the most like effeminate character. He tells a story about he would go to gay bars while that show's on TV, and people would just expect him to be Emmett, the effeminate guy, and it really affected dating. And I just wonder, like, did you have a similar experience where you would go out and they'd expect Noah and not Daryl? Absolutely. Noah was presumed to be a bottom, so I got a lot of very aggressive tops very big black men coming at me like they were about to wear something out. And I was like, <laughs> you don't know me like that, girl. You, don't know. you know, I was very, you know, I had, I had to put some people in their place. I just think that people were assuming that I was going to bend to their whims. And I was not, I mean, I'm, I don't talk about this very often, but it had me a little wary of going to black gay bars because I felt like, I couldn't just sort of walk up to somebody and be like, hey, how are you? As opposed, and it was always a, a thing. I used to love going to the Catch One, Jules Catch One. And then when the show became a hit, it was like, oh, this isn't really fun anymore. This is, a, this is an appearance. And I'm not meeting people. I'm greeting people. You know what I mean? Like, it's no longer a thing. And you can't get too drunk and sloppy and just have fun. That was it. And then when you can't get too drunk, why go out? Stay your ass at home. 
Also, we have, I think, just started to have a conversation, just started to get over this talk about consent in gay bars, where like for many years, if you were in a gay bar, you were kind of were consented to like someone groping you or someone touching you. And like, we wouldn't think twice. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. How are you touching people who didn't got, who not, did not give you permission? What the fuck is wrong with you? And that's been, we were, that was normal for us. Yeah. People would grab my ass all the time. Same. And it wouldn't, until like a year ago, it wouldn't phase me. And now I'm like horrified when it happens. Yeah. I was, I mean, I was phased. I was always like, excuse, excuse me. I even had some boyfriends try to get into fights because people were very, very bold. Hey, shoot your shot, but girl, calm down. So if that's how people at bars expected to see Noah, how did it affect your career in terms of like the industry? Did they only expect that you could like deliver this one kind of performance also? Well, what was interesting about the first season of Noah's Ark that year, I shot a movie called Boy Culture and I shot a movie called Another Gay Movie. And I played very different men in those two films. And my assumption was that, okay, 2005, Daryl Stevens is coming with these three very different characters. Obviously, I'm going to have all kinds of opportunities and play all kinds of different things. And what people gravitated to was ultimately the softer Noah character. And I think ultimately that's, again, about the TV aspect. I think television characters feel more familiar and they feel more like that must be who you are. I'm seeing you every week and I'm seeing you go through all these different stories. That's got to be who you really are. There was a point when I thought, okay, if I'm not playing straight characters, my career is going to end up stalling. Like, just, I'll just hit a point where there's, they run out of gay characters and there's nothing left for you to do. But fortunately, that's sort of not been the case. Like, I feel like with time, gay characters have become more central and, and normalized in television. And, and so I keep working. And frequent. Yeah. There's just more quantity. Yeah. So it's, 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 been, a, it's, it's been a gift. I think that I... Again, like 2012, I, I did a show called DTLA, and the Noah's Ark movie came out in 2008. So four years later, I was still trying to break free of the Noah sort of, I don't want to call it a stink or a stench, but the Noah image in casting. So I very deliberate. I grew a beard. I only wore suits and ties. I was like, I'm going to be a manly man. I'm going to be you know, like kind of an asshole. Like, you got to be able to see me as something else, right? Because I could do other things. And even the, fa- you know, the the Noah's Ark fans, every time I did something else, were like, oh, but you'll always be Noah to me. And I always want to, you know, where's Noah? When's Noah going to come back? It was very much like, no, not that, this. This one thing that you do that I like. So I, I became a little bit like, okay, well, if that show never comes back, I just will, you know, it had it had its impact. That's not a terrible legacy to have. I'm obviously going to move on to something else. And quite honestly, right before I got B positive, the show I'm doing on I'm, I'm on now on CBS, I had kind of decided I've, I've got a daughter now. I decided, okay, I'm going to be a dad now. I'm going to do something else. If 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 I can't do anything but remind people of the show Noah's Ark from 2005, then maybe I'll do something else. And you know, we shot the reunion in the summer, like two months before I booked B positive. So it was it was very much like okay, Noah's Ark. It keeps coming back. And there were talks about reunions and and reboots. Every couple of years, somebody would be like, let's do a reboot. Let's do a reunion show. And then nothing would materialize. And, you know, it was only during the COVID pandemic stay your ass at home order that that could actually be pulled off because we were all sitting at home doing nothing. 
And then I feel like that was the, the final chapter. I feel like that reunion was really it. When you say you were going to do something else, were you say, are you saying you had planned to like, quote unquote, like quit acting? Yeah, it was going to be not my focus. Like hands off the wheel. I mean, I still write. I have a writing partner. We work every week. And I felt like, you know, maybe behind the scenes stuff is more my thing. I don't, I don't necessarily have to be in front of a camera. I don't even, as actors, I will say this. When you don't work frequently, it starts to feel like, oh, maybe I'm just not supposed to do this. Maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. And then interestingly enough, when we decided to have the kid, work picked up. The year and a half leading up to her being born, obviously we had a discussion two years before, right? Gay men have to plan these things, right? But a year and a half before, I was booking, I booked 20s, I booked Good Trouble, I was on Lovecraft Country. I was suddenly I was I was like booking things. I was like, these are shows I actually want people to watch and think people will see. Like this is amazing. Like suddenly I'm I'm working. So it was interesting. It's the moment I was like, okay, maybe I'll just eh. and the Noah's Ark reunion happened and that had a big grand reception. It just felt like, okay, well, maybe that was a little bit of a rash decision to take your hands off. Or maybe that was exactly the right decision. Take the pressure off yourself. I don't want to connect dots that don't exist. However, Noah's Ark touched a lot of people's lives in a time when the majority of the people in power in Hollywood were white straight men who probably didn't see this show. And so you just named Good Trouble, which has Peter Page again and Bradley Bredewig. The 20s has Lena Waithe. It's almost like the people who are watching Noah's Ark have now grown up and have power and are calling you to cast you. Yes. I feel like those people were watching Noah's Ark as... 28, 30-year-olds being like, oh my God, look what we can do, grew up and did it, and then said, hey, what are you doing? I literally felt like that was, was what was happening. I mean, I think that's how Hollywood works, you know, it's not just Daryl. Right. But it hadn't worked like that for Daryl until 2020 or 2019. I will say that, you know, ultimately my face is changing, right? I'm an older man now. I think Noah was this very, you know, pretty young thing. And I think that it it maybe has taken a little a, a minute for Daryl to mature into a, a role that doesn't require the softness and the the flowing hair and the UGG boots, right? I think the other thing is that, quite honestly, I think, and we're talking that 2005, 2006, around that time, Shonda Rhimes was taking over the world. And what Shonda Rhimes helped Hollywood understand is that there can be gay characters and trans characters in a show just talking to other people. It doesn't have to be a show like Queer as Folk or Will and Grace or Noah's Ark where everyone in the show is gay. I think that there's, there, was, there was space suddenly in Hollywood for there to be gay characters that popped up in stories that were not centering gay groups of friends. And so the shows just changed. It became like, oh, this character has got a gay brother. We're normalizing it because we're putting these shows in front of wider audiences. You don't have to be on Showtime or Logo to see these shows. You can go to channel, you know, whatever ABC is seven, channel seven, and see some gay people. I'm just thinking about like Hollywood likes to tell the story that only black gay men watch shows with black gay men in it and vice versa when we have the Crazy Rich Asians, you know, which many people love that movie. My Big Fat Greek Wedding, I think about all the time. More than just like Greek people love that movie and saw themselves in it. Like, I don't need to see a Jewish gay man on screen to connect with the story and enjoy it. I don't hear like Hollywood echoing that. I think as a gay man, you can see yourself 
in a character that's not necessarily reflecting you. Because we have learned our entire lives, we were trained our entire lives. White straight men have not been. So if they don't see themselves, literally themselves, Chris Pratt, looking back at them from the screen, they're like, I don't get it. I can't watch it. It's not me. Oh, they go to one of the other nine options they have. Yeah, that's that's where we are. And I think it's where we'll continue to be until, you know, Lena and Justin and... Justin Simeon, yes. And all these these other folks take over Hollywood. It's time to make space. Before I let you go, I learned a lot talking to you, but also one of the things I learned is that you are a father. I did not know that. Oh, did we not discuss that when I was saying that? I have some things going on. Let's postpone this interview until I have a minute to breathe. Yeah, she'll be 11 months in two days. So she's almost a year old. Oh, you're a new dad. I'm a new dad. She's a pandy baby, a pandemic baby. <laughs> so that decision to, to sort of take the hands off the wheels was 2019. That was recently. Did it feel like a big decision? Huge. And took me a couple weeks to be like, okay, uh, yeah. Because also I, at that point, was in my mid-40s or early, you know, early mid-40s. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do this ever, better do it now, right? There's that. And then there's also, I also happen to be involved with a man who I felt like would be a great dad with a family who I felt like would also be there around to support us if we needed it, right? When I go back to work, she has a grandmother who lives nearby who's going to be watching her while I'm at work and her, her baba's at work. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, this is the time and the, and the place to do it. This is the man to do it with. Yeah, I thought I took it very seriously. And I think that it's a it's it's one of the greatest gifts of life to 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 wake up taking care of somebody every day. It's 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 amazing how your focus, particularly I don't know if this is all gay men, but as an actor, we can be so focused on our bodies, on our faces, on our careers, on the cars we're driving, on the throw pillows on our couch, the shit that really does not matter suddenly falls away. And I will be completely honest, I've not been to the gym in a year and a half. And suddenly it becomes about something real, something that's not about our own ego. It's about someone's well-being, someone's, someone else's happiness, someone else's health and adorable outfit and smile and her teeth, her teeth coming in and stuff like that. Like everything shifts. And I, I, am, I am so grateful for that shift. I think it's changed who I am in the best way. I mean, now, like, on the show, like, you're almost no longer Noah. You're a chance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, by the, by the reunion, Noah is having a baby. But, yeah, I'm chance. I'm basically chance, yeah. I'm daddy. So, you're 11 months, you've been a father. What has been, like, the biggest surprise of fatherhood? The patience that I have for this child who will sometimes throw a fit or not want to be lay back on her on her changing table or knock the spoon of food out of my hand because she wants to watch Baby Einstein instead. The things where, where you th- I would think a younger me, a less mature me, would want to go off on somebody. I just look at her and go, oh, okay, that's the best you can do right now. That's okay. We'll do better next time. It's a bottomless well of love that I don't know that you look. I love the man. I love her, Baba. I love the man I'm involved with, but it's a different kind of love. There's a conversation that we're having, me and him, right? There's a negotiation all the time about what this relationship is about. With me and her, there's no negotiation. I'm here for you always, for for the rest of your life, the rest of my life, because I'll 
<laughs> I'll drop dead by the time you get to college. But that's the relationship. And it's and it's such a beautiful, such a beautiful thing to find in yourself and myself. I think that's a uh, amazing place to leave it. So thank you so much for this. Thank you, Jeff. And that was Daryl Stevens. If you have not yet seen Noah's Ark and would like to, it is streaming many places online. And then next week, we will be back with the writer and editor, Den Michelle. She actually says that seeing Daryl Stevens in Noah's Ark completely changed her life. Oh my God. Up until that point, I had seen so little representation of Black queer people in media that when I was much younger, I thought I couldn't be queer because that was a white person thing. Like, I literally thought that. Because there just wasn't any. And Noah was visibly effeminate. And he was, like, had an active sex life. At that time in my life, I did not feel like I was desirable. Everything that I ever heard from almost any gay man that I was ever interested in was, oh, I'm not into black guys or I'm not into femme guys. And so I really like went through college without dating almost anyone without feeling like I was desirable it wasn't until I got into the real world that I learned that in fact I was sexy and that there were plenty of people who wanted to bone me and so there was this character who was living kind of the life I wanted to lead and was finding love and was actively being pursued by many men at at different times it was sort of like my very first it gets better moment so that is why Daryl Stevens is iconic to me so that was Den Michelle, who is the brand new editor-in-chief of Electric Literature. That full conversation will be out next week, so if you've not yet subscribed, now is the perfect time. And then as always, if you enjoy our show, please, we have a tiny request. Help us spread the word. When you post on Facebook or Twitter, do an Insta story, text in your group chat, all those things are the biggest way you can help our show continue to grow. We do ask every week because not only does it make my day, it truly is a massive help. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye.